Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. Welcome to season six, I can't believe it, of the Slavic Connection. To kick things off, I have a great episode here for you with Dr. David Cooper. He's the department head and associate professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And his new book about the Czech manuscripts, Forgery, Translation, and National Myth, is out the first week of September with Cornell University Press. We talk about the Queen Court's manuscript and the Green Mountain manuscripts, which are integral pieces of the Czech National Revival movement in the 19th century, forgery, translations, deep fakes. It's all here, folks. Take a listen. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. David, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so your book, it's called The Czech Manuscripts. What are the Czech manuscripts? Yeah, so the Czech manuscripts are a series of forgeries that were dramatically discovered in the second decade of the 19th century that pretended to be medieval manuscripts. Um, the one, the most important manuscript, the, the Rukopis Karlovy Dvorsky, the Queen's Court manuscript, appeared to be sort of late 13th century, early 14th century. And it's the bigger one. It has it has um, lyric poems, folk songs, really. It has epic poems, you know, sort of short, short epic poems, songs of battles and this type of thing. And then the second manuscript, which came to light. Uh, so the first one was discovered in 1817. The second one, the Rukopis um, Zonohorsky, the Green Mountain Manuscript, shows up, it's sent by mail to the, the brand new Czech National Museum um, in 1818. But it was probably, it was probably came appeared a year before around the same time as the first manuscript um and it's just it's a very short manuscript just a few pages it has one epic poem that sort of relates the story about the founding of the the czech dynasty the first ruling um, dynasty of the bohemian kingdom and it appeared quite distinctly to be maybe from the ninth or 10th centuries so really really old and much much older than any you know sort of evidence of czech writing or evidence of distinct sort of czech literary traditions that had been found to that time so these are these are manuscripts that appeared and sort of were sensational for demonstrating sort of a distinct czech culture in an earlier period than had been previously thought and 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 the, the second manuscript in particular in a much earlier period to the point that the, the, there were some skeptics towards that manuscript sort of right from the start did you tell me a little bit about that skepticism from the start yeah so the the big expert at the time on slavic studies was josef dobrovsky he, he was in the process of writing a a, a grammar i mean he's a he's a philologist he's a, a linguist he's writing a, a grammar of the old slavic language and he's doing research into you know old old, old czech writing and traditions and two of the people who are likely forgers of these manuscripts were his students and he was doing a private uh, slavistic seminar for university age students so he's the big guy, and and he's also on the board of the National Museum, where the second manuscript is sent to be added to the collections. And he's he looks at it, and you know, the, within the story, there's um, law tablets inscribed with Czech laws. The the Czech Kingdom, they're calling these representatives from the different parts of the Czech Kingdom. It seems to be much more sort of unified and organized than anything in his research sort of suggested it would have been in such an early period. 
right? I mean, we're talking back into the legendary history of the Czechs, really before, you know, even even Latin history start to talk, talk about the Bohemian Kingdom and its history and these kinds of things. So he was highly skeptical. I mean, all of his research about sort of ancient Czech history, th th these manuscripts would have, this, this one particular manuscript would have just turned on its head, right? And suggested that, oh no, they were much further along, much earlier than, than uh, Mr. Dobrovsky had thought. He immediately suspected his students right, uh, Václav Hanka and Josef Linda as, as having sort of concocted this. But despite that prestige, it didn't, his, his opinions didn't catch on. No, I mean, there were, people were more careful with this manuscript at first, but there were a number of younger patriots who promoted it. And so they actually, there was a, a, a Polish scholar who was writing a history of Slavic law and they sent it to him because, because of course it has these law tablets, right? And it's sort of, there's a dispute in the, in the story about the nature of Czech inheritance law. These two brothers are disputing over the inheritance of their father's estate and so whether they should share it or whether they should divide it or whether the older brother should get all of it as the eldest, right? And sort of primogeniture kind of inheritance. And the older brother, of course, is arguing for that. And, and, and the, the council ultimately decides that, you know, no, that's German law. That's not our laws. And it should be, it should be divided among them, right? And so it gets included in this study of Slavic law that's published in like 1820 or 21. And they send it along to the Russian Academy of Sciences. And the head of the Russian Academy of Sciences loves it and produces a translation of it. So the, the manuscript already gets this, this international circulation and starts to develop a reputation as this important fundamental document in Slavic history, right? Mm. Um, in spite of Dobrovsky's objections. And so, you know, there's, there's this struggle then within the Czech community of those who are promoting it and, and, and a few around Dobrovsky who are saying, you know, actually, we should be very careful with this. It's not what it appears to be. Dobrovsky passes away in 1829, and there's he, he's, before that, he managed to publish sort of his arguments and his objections to it in 1824. And there's some, there's some initial sort of polemics over it. You know, one of the friends of Hanka and Linda, Václav Svoboda, he engages Dobrovsky in polemics and sort of makes the arguments for why his objections are not valid, but it's not definitive, right? And so it takes sort of the next generation, um, this younger generation, many years before they're ready to sort of take on Dobrovsky's arguments. And it happens in 1840. And it's Palatsky, mm -hmm. who is, is the author by that time of the first history of the Czech nation and sort of has the honorific of father of the Czech nation, right? Mm -hmm. So he's one of the two authors. And the other is Pavel Josef Shafarik, who is a Slovak, who has sort of replaced Dobrovsky now as the, the major authority on Slavic antiquities. And those two together sort of co-author a study of the of the second manuscript of the Green Mountain manuscript and make the point by point arguments against, you know, Dobrovsky's now two decade old objections, sort of trying to prove that, that these are not valid objections and this can be an authentic manuscript. And that sort of allows that second manuscript to really be brought in and promoted again um, without any shame without any reservations, right? And so at that point, the two manuscripts together sort of become these foundational documents. There was never really much doubt about the initial manuscript, about the, the, the Queen's Court manuscript. And so they're, they're now sort of, they're kosher. They're ready to be used for historical studies, for studies mm -hmm. of development of Czech literature and so on. And they actually, because they, they deal with this early period of Czech history, they become sort of foundational documents in, in building this mythology of the, the, the Czech nation, right? So Czech nation building is sort of really picking up in the third and fourth decades of the 19th century. We used to have just like a handful of, of, of Czech patriots who could speak and write Czech. Lots of people speaking Czech, 
in the in the, the countryside in the villages right but they don't really mm-hmm. think of themselves as czechs per se right and so this whole process of creating and building um an idea of czech nationhood one aspect of that is sort of creating a mythology who are we czechs what's what are we like right what is what is what, what is our nature how does that reflected in our history and these documents sort of become then some of the most important documents in defining that it was fascinating i was reading from your book i didn't know that i think it was the queen's court manuscript that hanka said he found pages of it that had been made into fletching for arrows yes yeah yeah so he found it um he was going back to visit his sort of home region outside of prague to the east eastern bohemia and went with some people to a vault in the church tower in the town of dvorkralove wanted to look through things there because there was there were instruments and 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 documents and things from the Hussite war period from the sort of 14th and 15th century um including arrows that would have been used from the time of Jan Zizka the famous Hussite warrior and you know sort of old documents and and that's where he discovered this this manuscript and the first couple pages of the manuscript are are sort of cut away and some of the arrows in that in that vault also were fletched with parchment instead of feathers and so he sort of circulates the story and 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 you know spreads the fiction that most likely the the this manuscript the reason it's missing the first couple of pages is it was being cut up and used as you know fletching for arrows in this religious war from you know a few, several centuries later from when the manuscript had been created it's just it's just so on the nose to to cut up this this very you know us against all text and then make it into arrows for the Hussite like it right it's 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 being deployed in battle in multiple ways right as text and as arrows and <laughs> so it's so on the nose how do people buy this for seventy years yeah. In, in part, I think, I mean, this, this manuscript sort of comes along at a time when everyone is like, there, there's a, there's a medieval mania in Europe, right? And everyone is investigating their medieval traditions because sort of romanticism comes along with an idea of sort of national originality, along with a general idea of originality and authorship that was sort of new. And this idea that like each nation is unique, it has its own traditions reflected in its history. And so in order to know who you are, you have to you have to know your history right and that history sort of helps to define you know your national character and your national mission and so they're looking for this but what they're finding authentic manuscripts in their archives those that haven't been destroyed by the counter reformation which was very unkind to czech language documents cuz czech was a language of heresy those that hadn't been destroyed by the hussite wars which also had a similar sort of destructive effect on monastery collections and these kinds of things because it was a religious war right so the surviving documents that they had a lot of them were courtly love lyric poems this is sort of the oldest stuff that they were finding but it was clearly derivative of other european sorts of courtly love lyric mm-hmm. traditions so not really check in in a way that they were looking for or it was religious literature devotional poetry or or religious narrative poetry and these kinds of things mm-hmm. and that's you know it can be used maybe for nation building but it doesn't really fit the bill right mm-hmm. it's 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 center of interest is elsewhere right in religious identity rather than in national identity 
And so these really fit the bill. I mean, these were like, again, sort of on the nose, as you've said, right? These were these were exactly what they're looking for. You know, and other nations were finding things. France found the Song of Roland. You know, England found the Beowulf epic, right? The, the Germans had the Nibelungen lead. Where's ours? And they're looking and they're not finding it. So I see these as a, like an attempt really at a reconstruction, right? Because they're using Serbian and South Slavic materials and they're using Russian oral materials sort of from folklore um, that's been collected in the 18th century. Uh, and and saying, you know, sort of crossbreeding those and producing, you know, this is what the Czech stuff must have sounded like. And so I think partly that that the reason that it's not there's there's so little skepticism. Well, this doesn't really touch the stories of the of the, of the arrows and the fletching. Right. Which is but I mean, all the stories of how these manuscripts, these there were there were a few additional small manuscripts that show up. They're all a little bit far fetched. Right. Mm-hmm. But they they look authentic to what was being sought as authentic at the time. They sort of, mm-hmm. they, they, they look like what people are looking for. And so when they find it, the first the first reaction is not skepticism, but euphoria. Mm-hmm. Here it is. We, we thought we probably had it. You know, we knew that we were an old nation. Um, and here's the evidence of it. And so the evidence, and it's also like the evidence is written in a very old script, in a much older form of Czech with verb forms that no one uses anymore. So you really have to be educated in this stuff in order to read it, which means that most people aren't qualified Hmm. to direct skepticism at it. They don't know enough about old Czech language to to say, hey, that's kind of off. They're using the wrong past verb tense here. Hmm. They should be using this other one. Or, you know, these dual forms are kind of off. They don't even have very much dual forms. So there's not, there's numbers. You have singular, plural. And in the old language, you also have dual for pairs of things. And Czech still has some remnants of this in modern Czech, but it's like mostly for eyes, ears, and hands. And in the manuscripts, it's used for sort of any pairs of things. Anytime there's two of something, it has a different grammatical form. And it's kind of off. It's not quite done correctly. But no one was qualified to, to see that at the time. Right. So instead, what you, you have people reading it who really can't read it. They need like an expert translation even in order to see what's there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that that's sort of there's there's barriers to skepticism. Right. There's 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 the cultural barriers of this is what we're looking for. Here it is. There's the barriers of expertise where no one's really qualified to direct skepticism at it. And yeah, there's the fact that these these sort of what they need, what they were looking for, these fit the bill. They're finding other old things, but these fit what they're looking for and are much more useful to them than the authentic materials that mm-hmm. they're finding. They're easier to work with. And they speak because they're, they're legal documents. They speak to court practices. They establish a political culture in the Czech language. Yeah. And that's just the, the one document, the green, the green mm-hmm. mountain manuscript, right? The older one. Right. Yeah. And the others, you know, they sort of speak to the qualities of the Czech character but it's also about, oh, we had, you know, this independent Czech poetic tradition, at least as early as the Germans, because mm-hmm. within the kingdom of Bohemia, you have Czech speakers and you have uh, in, in the urban areas, German speakers. German language culture has gone through this renaissance in the 18th century and into the early 19th century. And you have writers of the status of Goethe and Schiller. And how is uh, someone who's being and the Czechs, they don't have the Czech language schools at this point. They're being educated in German. So how do you convince people you should learn to read Czech, you should learn to write in Czech when German culture is now this, you know, it has world status 
And how do you compete? Well, one place you compete is you can say that, well, we're just as old, right? We have these older things that are just as interesting and just as good as German culture. But of course, we've been colonized then by German language culture since then. So what we need to do is revive our culture mm-hmm. because as Czechs, for us to be authentic, to, to, to realize our identity, we, can't, we shouldn't be joining German language culture and writing in German, right? We should be writing in Czech and we should be learning to, to speak and write Czech as, as you know, cultivated individuals. These manuscripts then play a really important role in convincing people that this is this is worth doing. We had a period where Czech culture was just as advanced as German culture, so it could it could catch up again. You literally have stories of these young men who, you know, were writing, composing poetry in German and suddenly have they have this moment of epiphany where they realize that they should be they should be doing Czech and they switch and they 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 change their names to a more Czech sounding name and they start to write poetry in Czech and they become part of this 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 Czech cultural sphere, right, which at the time is is minuscule, but starts to grow and build momentum through the middle of the century. And the manuscripts play this really interesting sort of initiatory role in some of these conversions. They're reading German materials in school and after school, the teacher says, hey, you should have a look at this and, you know, hands them the publication of the manuscripts and they go, wow, I can't quite read it, but I didn't know it existed. (laughs) (laughs) So this speaks to, I guess, two things that you touch on in the book. The forgery practices, which I think is is really interesting, especially in our our time of, of uh, AI generated material and, and deep fakes. <laughs> so I, I was I was hoping to bring that up, but also I think that because you talk about that in a very European context, mm-hmm. which also I think relates to the translation practices and how you said that they were pulling from you know BCS and and Polish to get to fill in these loan words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was hoping you could speak to that a little bit. So I you know at the point when these manuscripts are sort of exposed as forgeries in the late 19th century, there's a lot of sort of moral stigma and, I don't know, self, self-abnegation. self Oh, we've been fooling ourselves as Czechs for so long, and, you know, we've been lying to ourselves and this kind of thing. But actually, like, if you look at it in a broader context, like, the the reconfiguring of culture as national culture is happening all over the place. And it always involves processes of inventing traditions, right? Um, repurposing manuscripts, highly selective, right? We like this part of our folklore, but this off-color stuff, we're not going to publish and we're not going to mention. We were going to pretend like it doesn't exist. So it's this there's this sort of grand falsification that's happening on a broad scale in European culture mm-hmm. that is the the definition of national cultures. Culture is bigger than national boundaries, and it always has been and it always will be. And cultures are creative through processes not of sort of out of nothing original creation. Um, literature has always been a process of rewriting, right? And reworking and reconfiguring things that you borrow and you take from, and it doesn't matter what language it comes from, and it comes from your language, an older, an older, you know, sort of layer of your language, or it comes from somewhere else. You take it, you mix it, you put it together, and you make something new out of it. But for the ideologues of national culture, that doesn't work because you have to be sui generis, your own thing. It all has to be your own original work. And so there's this fiction of, you know, national originality and creativity that sort of goes against translation. It goes against imitation. Translation and imitation are extremely productive for developing new values, new processes, new genres of literature and these kinds of things. So they're still doing it, but it starts to develop this stigma. Um, and so it becomes covert at times, right? You pass off something as new writing, but it's really a translation from somewhere else. 
this is going on all the time in the first couple of decades in, in Czech literature practice. And so the manuscripts in that context, they don't look that extreme or, or you know, unusual at all. And you can see these kinds of things in, in, you know, sort of romantic forgery is sort of all over the place in Europe. These are sort of unique, mostly in the fact, one, that they took so long to be outed, right? That it took a long time before people realized, and there was, you know, sort of definitive arguments made that they were fake, right? 70 years is, is quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And then within that 70 years, they're sort of unique too in, in, the, in the large role that they played in nation building for the Czechs. They became these sort of cult documents. Everyone wanted to own a copy of them so that like the, 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 the publishers in Prague, you know, sometimes didn't have enough, enough copies. And they were, so they were constantly issuing new editions. There were like 16, 17, 18 editions done in the, in, in the middle couple decades of the 19th century, just because there was such demand for them. Did, did they get beyond the Czech cultural, the budding Czech cultural world much other than, I guess you'd said Russia and Poland earlier. Yeah. So among, among the Slavs, they were certainly Mm -hmm. fairly well known. And um, so Hanka publishes a polyglot edition, a couple of them. He starts in the 1840s and by like 1856, he publishes an edition where there's full translations or partial translations into really every other Slavic language, you know, Ukrainian, Russian, Serbian, also including like Polish and and these these disappearing languages in in the German realm, the the Upper Sorbian and Lower Sorbian languages, right? Which um, are trying to revive, but don't end up being as successful as the, as mm-hmm. Czech and Slovak. So it's it's the Slavic world, but there's also translations there into German, into French, into Italian, into English. So in that sense, they travel much farther than anything else in Czech literature for a long time because how how long is it before english you know english language culture starts to pay attention to czech literature again you know maybe it's with chopek and the 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 robot play are you are yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and not much before that and not that this was a big splash and a big sensation right but at least experts knew of it and it was available in ways that other other parts of czech literature just weren't they weren't on anybody's radar so yeah, and 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 largely the foreign experts were on board with the authenticity until sort of starting in the 1850s, 1860s. Some of these other sort of smaller forgeries that were that sort of were issued or were discovered around the two major manuscripts. Some of them there were doubts and skepticism, and they started to be examined critically. And several of them were were sort of found to be false, right? And so sort of all this stuff coming out at the same time the fact that some of these smaller uh forgeries started to be discovered or or mm. or, or, or exposed then started to put skip, direct skepticism towards the two larger manuscripts but it took it took time i think the, the sort of by the 1870s there's there's good arguments being made against the both of the major manuscripts and and you know other other slavists from other countries are, are are starting to say uh probably they're not authentic but for the czechs themselves for whom they've become so important to make that step right it really takes extra time and it also takes a sort of institutional change so where the the, the skepticism then the, the the arguments the sort of concerted effort and the campaign against the manuscripts comes from is from the university in prague and mm-hmm. it comes after that university sort of splits into Czech and German faculties. So this is one of the big successes of the Czech national movement is they get a Czech university, right? Mm-hmm. Or a part of a university that's a Czech university, right? And it's it's new young faculty members there that are looking to establish their credentials, 
establish the validity of Czech science and scholarship and these sorts of things, they're the ones that start the campaign and start to make the arguments against the manuscripts, sort of like, if we're going to like really found a, a Czech nation. And one of the, the important thing is one of them, one of these young scholars is, is Masaryk, mm-hmm. who eventually is going to become the first president of Czechoslovakia. And this is his first step on the political stage. It's also his sort of like first development of his big scholarly reputation as a sociologist is to lead this campaign against the manuscripts because he has a different idea of the meaning of Czech nationhood. And it's not going to be based on our myths about our past, but it's going to be based on a more sort of modern, forward-looking uh, democratic ideals and these kinds of things. Very triumphant liberalism. Yeah. Yeah. He, and this is kind correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the, this is the Czech question he's trying to answer is what's with, if this is gone, these manuscripts aren't there, what's the point? Yeah. So this whole, there's there's sort of long running debate on the meaning of Czech history. Mm-hmm. And it's really with the campaign against the manuscripts that this becomes problematic and becomes the question, right? Because we sort of knew what the meaning was. The manuscripts told us mm-hmm. and sort of 1890s now, uh, okay, so now we've got to figure out what is it. And so there's this, this, this long running debate into the 1820s and beyond of, you know, the meaning of Czech nationhood is in many ways initiated by the fall of the manuscripts and the campaign against them. You say in your introduction that from the beginning, Czech identity was always kind of a simulacra, like it was always just building meaning into something. And this, mm-hmm. it, 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 they realize it themselves almost. Would that be fair to say at the end of the 19th century or they start to? Yeah, well, they doubts. certainly they certainly realized that there's the possibility of falsification <laughs> of this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how conscious it is at that point yet. But they certainly have this reckoning with this 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 problem of defining national mission, national identity, and and they realize that you know there's that there's been a false aspect to theirs in part because it's based in part on some false manuscripts, right? So I don't know for how conscious it is for them that in in general national culture is is born on falsification of this type. Probably not yet. Um, they're looking for more authentic ways to ground it and to found it and and get away from the falsification. But the awareness of this possibility of falsification. It certainly has to hit them harder than it does in other places. Yeah, that we can that we can tell ourselves false stories and build whole castles in the sand on them, right? And 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 act as if it's as if it's true for decades. But then, what do you do once the sand gets washed away? I don't know. You were listing all the the sort of the, the sides in this piece of it. I thought it was kind of curious that so many of the people working to dispel the myth are Moravian. Yeah. I, is yeah. this, am I reading too much into that? Or? No. Yeah. So the two, the two parts of the, there's three parts of the Bohemian king, kingdom, right? The Czech crown lands, there's Bohemia, there's Moravia and there's Silesia, right? And Silesia has already partly been taken by Prussia at this point, but the two crown lands were sort of administered separately. And so they have their own history and the Czech national movement takes off much more slowly in, in the Moravian part of the kingdom, mm-hmm. in part because, because it wasn't the central site of the Bohemian crown, right? Which was in Prague. And so 
and I, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to list all the factors, right? They're, they're, they're just, there's a lot more German speakers. They're also in the countryside, I think. It's much more mixed. And there's the antagonism between Czech and German doesn't seem to develop as quickly. In any case, and, and there's, so there's different, they have different needs. So the, the Czech patriots in the Moravian lands have different needs than the Czechs in the Bohemian lands. And there's already been some historical disputes between them over like certain certain stories of, of Czech history and the Moravian actors within them and so on. And so there's already this sort of mutual skepticism. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a, you know, uh, uh, scholars, one's a high school teacher, one, the other's a professor at the university in Vienna who sort of make some of the earliest arguments that these, these manuscripts are false coming from within Czech patriotic circles. No one's going to question their, their status as Czech patriots, but suddenly these Czech patriots are starting to question these fundamental documents, right? And I think it's because they don't, they, the, sort of the, the sacred cows of bohemian Czech nationalism aren't as sacred to them. They have mm-hmm. sort of their own distinct um, history there and their their own concerns. And so they're willing to take them on in a way that it takes the bohemian Czechs longer. So you, you had hinted at this earlier, but I, I want to bring it up again here. You raised a sort of provocative question at, at another point in the book where you, you asked, could these manuscripts have offered an alternative foundation for the national movement other than an organized religion? Mm-hmm. Maybe without, you know, giving away a punchline of the book. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm, I'm curious where you landed on that. Yeah. So the way that these these manuscripts are treated in the, the Czech patriotic community, nationalist community, let's call it that, in the 19th century, they become sort of like sacred documents, right? And um, any skepticism directed toward them immediately gets you labeled as, you know, a traitor, not a true Czech, and these kinds of things, right? So there's this belief in authenticity that resembles in many ways religious belief. And this sort of became really clear to me in looking at the when the disputes break out, the manuscript wars in the in the middle 1880s, because like you're 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 traitor you're like a traitor to the faith if you doubt the manuscripts, and they're treated as kinds of heretics, and 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 there's a lot of this religious language floating around, and it was floating around a little bit earlier too in in the way that you know people became Czech. Sometimes it was figured in in people's memoirs as a kind of conversion story, right? I was German, but then I saw the light and I saw the truth. And in fact, they they they, they see themselves the the, the Czech groups were going out and evangelizing other Czech speakers and trying to convert them to join the Czech community. And they, they, they use this language themselves to talk about their activities, right? So it's, it's borrowing religious language and, and, you know, sort of evangelical Christian practices to talk about nationalism and national identity. And I was really, you know, as, as I stumbled across that sort of thing early on, I was really um, intrigued by that. Like, how is this like religion right how are these documents because they're not they're not religious documents they're not saying they're not you know saying anything about faith except they do some of the older epics pre- depict the czechs as pagans with pagan mm-hmm. practices of sacrifice and and veneration for the pagan gods right and the story in the green mountain manuscript is about how the franks have come in and they're impo- it's a kind of cultural imperialism they're imposing their religion on us they've burned our idols they've stopped us from from you know doing um veneration for our for our pagan gods and so on and so it's sort of there's this across these two manuscripts there's this depiction of sort of original czech identity as pagan which gets you sort of back before the introduction of christianity to the czechs right and the introduction of christianity to the czechs always brings with it division and divisiveness because there's a dispute right from the beginning are we going to be under the byzantine Mm. christian church are we going to be under rome 
and they get missionaries coming from the Byzantine church that bring them originally a sort of liturgy in Slavic language, but then eventually Rome takes over. And then you have the early Czech Protestant movement. So now it's between Rome and Protestantism, right? And this brings the Hussite Wars. So the, the history of Christianity in for the Czechs in the Czech in the Czech kingdom has been one of division. It's been one of strife. It's mm. been, you know, it's been destructive. As you know, and, and they've just now come out of in the late 18th century, the Counter-Reformation, which was mm-hmm. devastating to, again, the Czech manuscripts collections. It sort of had a depressive effect, not as big of one as they thought at the time, but it had a certain depressive effect on Czech language culture. Um, certainly, few, much fewer people are educated in writing, you know, learned books in Czech than they were two centuries before. And so the, the National Revival is in part is sort of overcoming this these problems of religious division. You know, unlike the Poles or the Russians, they can't say, oh, we're Catholic or we're Orthodox or the Slovaks even, you know. Even though they have Protestants as well, the, the Catholicism becomes more of a part of Slovak national identity than it ever does with Czech national identity. So I think the problem is if you're trying to build, as a small nation, a national community, for the Czechs, the question of religion is toxic mm. because it immediately introduces division again or the potential for division. And so I think one thing that like the depiction of these pagan Czechs offers the Czechs is here we were all together. This is what we were like before religious divisiveness. And they don't have to like become pagans. They can sort of recognize that the, the divisions are not endemic to them or something like that. Right. So the, the, the veneration of the manuscripts sort of gives them a place where they can be Czechs without the problem, the problem of divisive religion. And then their, their, their sort of commemorative practices and, and, and the way that they behave around the manuscripts sort of treat them as, as sort of quasi-religious texts and gives them an alternative. So because, because religion often is an important identifying factor in nationalism, and you see that in the region quite strongly, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the Croats versus the Serbs, right? Who's, who's uh, Catholic and who's Orthodox. And so for the Czechs, I think they sort of get around it in part through the manuscripts, Right. It allows them to be checks and, 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 and show they have a history of, you know, strong religious devotion. Let's just not talk about what it was exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it allows them to, 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 to sort of have find a unified place, a place where they can agree together and have sort of quasi religious kind of practices around it that don't demand that you identify as Catholic or as Protestant too strongly. It matters that they're Czech religious practices. The adjective Czech is more important than the actual practices. Right. Yeah. And the and the manuscripts sort of give them that that possibility, I think. So I think the one big thing we, we've talked around a, a bit, but um, maybe this is this can be a good thing to end it on. Um, mm-hmm. Did these rituals survive the forgery reveal? No, <laughs> they really didn't. So there are there are still groups, and there there were skeptics for a long time, and there's still groups of skeptics within um, the the Czech Republic today. There's a the Czech Manuscript Society that promotes sort of the the narrative that no this is authentic material and you know the skepticism is misplaced and we can make these counter arguments so it, it became much more problematic so the there were some anniversaries that were being celebrated in Dvorkralove where the first manuscript was discovered those sort of fall apart in the 1890s and and they stopped they stopped happening again until 2017 for the 200th anniversary. And then there was a sort of countrywide sort of commemoration, but it was a a commemoration of forged manuscripts for most people, right? Rather than, you know, the discovery of these important authentic medieval manuscripts. 
And so there is there, there is still this this group that sort of, sort of promotes skepticism, and they came out for the 200th anniversary with a uh, a new volume about the manuscripts, sort of the the the, the Czech manuscripts unknown to this day was the title of the, of the of the book. So there's not really a lot of engagement though with them among scholarly experts in the Czech Academy of Sciences or at the universities and other places. So there's not really any any more dialogue between the skeptics and the and the the now small group of believers in the authenticity authenticity of the manuscripts. And and the the ones that believe in the authenticity, I mean it's a it's a minority group and they don't really have they're not attached to it in a way that would have this sort of quasi-religious aspect anymore. It's mm. it's it's a it's a it's a scholarly dispute that they're happy to sort of keep poking the the big institutions about. And I think it's it's sort of a countercultural thing now, is is they see it as that within within scholarly sort of circles, right? It's it's like a conspiracy theory group, except they believe. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to ask if they have a YouTube channel or something. <laughs> they post <laughs> they, their their long videos about the authenticity of. Yeah, um, I haven't found that. They have a website though, where they 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 collect sort of the articles and this kind of thing. So there, a lot of them are older too, so they're not mm-hmm. that up to date with you know. To, to do YouTube videos, that's uh, sort of like sure. too new for them, maybe. Yeah. So the, or the one of the fun things about that group is that the, the, it, it had to distinguish itself in the 1830s from Czech fascist movements, um, which were disrupting university lectures about the manuscripts and so on. And sort of Czech fascism attaches itself because it's, you know, ultranationalism attaches itself to the authenticity of the manuscripts as a really important thing. And so there's sort of this this association then between fascism and and the believers in the manuscripts. Um, and they have to kind of very carefully. I think that's why there's not this possibility for a real impassioned defense of the manuscripts anymore, mm-hmm. because it immediately smells of fascism. It has right. a certain tone that you can't yeah. really strike. Huh. Yeah. Well, and this is as good a place as any to end it. Thank you so much for coming on, David. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's always fun to talk about the manuscripts. So now that the book's out, how, what, how I'm going to keep myself occupied, right? <laughs> Maybe the uh, Manuscript Society will start a letter campaign. You have to respond to them or something. There you <laughs> go. I'll have to, yeah. I, actually, I want to revise the the, the um, uh, Wikipedia pages about the manuscripts. They need some updating. And uh, that's that's a small project, side project that I need to do now. So I look forward to seeing the work. <laughs> Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces.